Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Now, who hasn't at some point thought, if only there were two of me, if only I had an extension of me that could pick up all the things that I keep missing? And that's what today's episode focuses on. There is an increasing trend in entrepreneurship and business in the rise of the job title, Chief of Staff. In recent episodes of this podcast, we had Salima from KBox Global, who started her career as a Chief of Staff, and Alex Stepany from Beam, who was also looking to hire one. It is one of the questions I regularly get from entrepreneurs that I work with when we are talking about how we can grow businesses quicker. They often ask me, explain how the role of Chief of Staff works when you were in Downing Street. After all, it's the highest profile Chief of Staff in the country. The job title originally comes from the military, but has been adopted more and more in politics and government over recent decades. The first example of its use in politics was when Roosevelt created the position of Chief of Staff to the Commander-in-Chief for his principal military advisor, Fleet Admiral William Leahy. In British politics, it was first introduced by Tony Blair in 1997. This is going to be the first in a new type of episode we'll be exploring where it's not just companies that we talk about, but we explore and tackle specific jobs and asking leading people in their field, what are the good characteristics that make that up? So today's guest is not an entrepreneur, but he was one of the most powerful people in the country. He was the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff and one of the longest serving in recent memory, Gavin Barwell, or now that he is a member of the House of Lords, Baron Barwell. The truth is, as we'll discuss today, there is no real job description for a Chief of Staff role. It is what you make of it, and you'll need a Swiss Army-style skill set, dealing with megatrends, handling sexual abuse stories, oh, and being able to teach the Prime Minister how to play pool. Gavin's background is that he had worked in Conservative campaign HQ and was then elected as a Member of Parliament in his home seat of Croydon in 2010. In the snap election of 2017, he lost his seat on Thursday night as Theresa May unexpectedly lost her majority. The Conservative government was teetering on the brink with a very real prospect that the UK would not be able to form a stable government. A rare situation in the UK which could lead to economic turmoil in the city. By Saturday morning, the Prime Minister had turned to Gavin to use her words to get her out of a hole. And she, in fact, pitched him the job of Chief of Staff. A spoiler, Gavin accepted the role and has since written a book entitled Chief of Staff, which is available in many places, but we'll hear why Gavin is backing a company called bookshop.org. Just a reminder that you can check out our previous episodes and the backstories to Jimmy's Jobs online at www jobsofthefuture.co and we are on Twitter and Instagram at Jimmy's Jobs. But before this episode starts, a big thank you to our series partners, Octopus. Octopus was founded in 2000 by Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, who sat in a living room using the yellow pages to get their first clients. Octopus now has 10 billion under management and employ over 750 people a mission to invest in the people, the ideas and industries that will help change the world. Many companies like to say they back entrepreneurs, but Octopus really put their money where their mouth is. And throughout this series, we'll be hearing more about where they are backing the next generation of great entrepreneurs. So Gavin, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Good to see you. Thanks for inviting me along. We start the third series by asking people what their pitch to the Prime Minister is. And obviously, this is a bit of a different episode <laughs> with having a politician on it. And of course, you were in the position where she was actually pitching to you the role of Chief of Staff. Can you talk us through how that moment came about and, and what happened in that conversation? This is a slightly odd conversation because I just emerged from the BBC studios having recorded an interview criticising the campaign she'd just run, which had resulted in me losing my seat as an MP. Uh, and as, as you all know, sometimes when number 10 is trying to get hold of you, you get a message to call the number 10 switchboard. So I thought, OK, it's probably the Prime Minister phoning around the MPs who've lost saying sorry. 
And that's exactly how the conversation started. And then I can't remember the exact phrase she used, but, but she said something like, um, anyway, I'm in a bit of a hole and I'd like you to come and be my chief of staff. And I was like, okay, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that was unexpected. And I, th- I, I paused because I was surprised. And I think whoever had suggested to her that I was a good person to ask, I think had probably said, you know, he's got young kids. He might not say yes. Mm. So she sort of very quickly said, of course, I'll understand if you don't feel you can do it. And I was like, no, like, if you're asking me to come and help, of course I'll come and help. And I then went down to, I sort of said, look, I think you're in a real hole and I need to come and see you right now. If I'm going to do this job, can't wait till Monday morning. Mm. So I went down to her home in Sonning in her constituency. So there isn't a job description. You'll, you'll know this from working there. Right? I, I sort of said, what's the job description? What does it involve? She said, well, there isn't really one. You sit outside my office as a sort of gatekeeper and, and you give me political advice, essentially. So initially there wasn't a, a sort of clear pitch. It was like, I mean, I'm in a massive hole. We need to sort of stabilise the government, um, get back on track and then, and then move forward. So I think that the main thing that was on her mind initially in terms of the immediate priority was trying to rebuild confidence among the parliamentary party obviously after yeah. the election uh, result we're, we're feeling pretty unsettled there's a a great description that you have in the book that, that you talk about in terms of being a swiss army knife and i thought that was a very good way of summing up the role of chief of staff and how how did it change over the two years because one of the things we should say is that special advisors chiefs of staff historically have not lasted particularly long in the role it's quite a new innovation to kind of come from the military a little bit yeah. a bit more of an american kind yes. of style thing but it's been prevalent in british politics for 20 years or so and you've been one of the longest serving at it but how did that role change because like you say at the beginning i mean it was almost ultimate crisis management i mean there was even problems bits that i was looking at kind of on the business side were we were worried about stock markets and yeah. things like that because it was we were in a rare position where political instability could override kind of economic stability it was quite strange that you were able to get that sorted quite quickly by providing that stability but would love to hear your reflections on that first week of that ultimate crisis management challenge and then how the role evolved yeah so i think there's a couple of core things to the role there's no job description as i said right mm-hmm. so it depends a little bit on who the prime minister is what your skills are what the situation demands that's what when i say human swiss army knife you kind of have to have a whole load of different things that you can bring out for different situations but i would say that the the two or three core bits of the job are number one you're the prime minister's most senior political council essentially mm-hmm. Number two, you are a gatekeeper. You'll know my desk sat right outside her door to her office. So no one could get in. To, as long as I'm sitting at my desk, no one can get in to see her without coming past me. And then third, you manage the, the team of political advisors in number 10 and to a lesser extent, the political advisors around the government. So those are the core bits. I think in terms of the first few days, in my mind, there were three immediate priorities to provide the stability that we wanted for all the economic reasons that you set out. So first of all, uh, she needed to be able to appoint a government. Now, there was a question, are there, or are her cabinet ministers going to be willing to carry on serving in the cabinet or is someone going to resign and try and push her out, essentially? Then she needed to basically have the, fa- have the confidence of the parliamentary parties. There was a crucial meeting of what's called the 1922 Committee of Backbench Conservative MPs on the Monday after the election, which could have been terminal had it mm. gone wrong. And then third, uh, the the election had left what's called a hung parliament. No party had got an overall majority. So you needed some kind of arrangement that provided the government with stability in terms of being confident that it could win votes in the House of Commons. And you'll know that obviously Labour were not going to do that with us. The Liberals weren't after their experience in uh, in coalition 2010-2015 and the price that they, rather unfairly in my opinion, paid for that. Mm. The Scottish Nationalists and the Welsh Nationalists weren't going to do it. So that really only left the DUP, the Northern Irish Unionist Party. So that was the third priority, to get some kind of arrangement with them that would enable the government to stay in office. So I'd say those were the initial priorities, but I, I joke in the in the book I've written about some of just the, the, the crazy things that you end up doing because circumstances demand it. So one of the crises we had was the Me Too crisis, that all of that sort of media publicity about appalling sexual abuse in Hollywood, there was a culture in SW1, a similar culture of powerful men, mm. you know, being in a position of power over young men and young women and some of the behaviours, you know, unacceptable behaviours essentially. And when the media started reporting some of those stories, people started phoning number 10 to whistleblow. 
to say this happened to me and this is the person that did it. And there was no one in number 10 to take those calls. Right? No one, no, there was no set process set up about, so they just got put through to me. So I found myself doing something I was completely ill-equipped, dealing with these horrendous stories of abuse that people had uh, experienced. And then uh, the, the completely opposite end of the scale, on a light-hearted note, we were at an EU Arab League summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. And the Prime Minister was meeting the Prime Minister of Italy uh, for a drink in the evening. So we were in the bar waiting for him. And I'd seen there was a pool table. So I'd gone over and was playing pool with one of the other members of the team. The Italian Prime Minister comes in and goes, oh, pool table. Challenges Teresa to a go. She's never picked up a pool cue in her life. So turned out one of the roles of the Chief of Staff was teaching the Prime Minister cue action around the pool table. So. And you talk about that really important meeting at the 1922 committee. And you say about how you drafted some notes, quite a common thing to do um, for the PM. Uh, but then you took the the notes away for her to be her authentic self. And that, I think, encompasses what must have been one of the biggest challenges as Chief of Staff, where you almost need to know the Prime Minister's mind as well as she does on issues. But then you also need to be able to challenge as well. And being able to draw that distinction and judgment in those moments must be incredibly difficult and challenging. Yes, I would say to anyone who is a chief of staff, in any, not just in politics, but in any role, the key uh, is to be able to speak for your boss, uh, but only to do so when you're absolutely certain you know your boss's mind. Right? My utility to the government uh, was that cabinet ministers and senior civil servants might surprise people listening very respectful of the Prime Minister's privacy. Right? Mm. Very few of them would phone the Prime Minister up on, on her mobile phone. Uh, they were not so respectful of my private time. So literally any time of the day, you'll have seen it, they would either queue up at my desk or phone yep. me up if I wasn't in the office and say, I'm thinking of doing X, what does the Prime Minister think? And the key was A, to know her mind so that on lots of occasions you could just answer the question. But if you didn't absolutely know her mind, not to say anything and say, I'll go, I'll speak to the Prime Minister, I'll come back to you. Because the moment you ever gave anyone a false steer, your credibility was shot and you were of no, no use anymore. So I think that was a sort of critical part of the job. The other side of the coin, you're absolutely right. Telling truth to power, I think, is one of the fundamental roles of a chief of staff. And I think there... It has to be done in private or if there's only one or two other people in the room who are also absolutely trusted advisors. You can't have a chief of staff sort of contradicting the prime minister or challenging them in front of their ministerial colleagues. Yeah. Um, but you have to be able to do it in private. And and my experience with Teresa was that she was very grateful for it, that you know, occasionally she would be thinking of doing something that I knew was going to be a mistake and... Uh, for, for often for very understandable reasons and you'd sort of say to her you can't do that and she'd be very frustrated and then like 10 minutes later she'd say actually oh, you've thought about it and thank you for but it's got to be done uh, I think in the right way and in private um, in order to maintain that relationship and one of the things I say in the book is that people often think of her as a very private person but I actually found from day one as long as it was just the two of us in the room yeah, you know, she she absolutely shared with me what she was privately thinking and would allow me to say what I needed to say to do the job. One of the interesting parts that you know, the, the quote that really stuck with me was from James Baker, who served as the chief of staff to both Reagan and Bush, which I don't think anyone in the UK has managed to serve two leaders of the country, but was talking about how, you know, you may be the second most powerful person in Washington as the chief of staff, but as soon as you kind of forget the latter part of that sentence, that's where you really run into difficulties with that. Um, and how, so how did you cope with that? Because you are, you know, you are incredibly powerful in that role. You talk about when you were housing minister previously, it would take weeks to get anything done. Once you become chief of staff, things move much quicker. How do you keep that all in perspective and and how do you so much of it is about prioritization and judgment because when you're in number 10 obviously you've got all the levers of government available to you and I think that's one of the interesting parts when it comes to entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurs and startups actually they don't starve they they drown there are almost too many options for them a lot of the time to go out and so how do you do that prioritization and kind of have that 
framework at times, like you say, in a role that was changing all the time yeah. as well. So I think there's two different things there. On, on your first point, it's really important to remember the way the way I sort of framed it was chief of staff. It's it, the key word is staff, not chief. And you have to remember that because the world, not just not just the government machine internally, but if you travel abroad, you know, the, the country you're visiting, they will treat you as the second most important person on the on the British delegation after the prime minister. So you mustn't let that go to your head. You have to remember that you're not there. You've got no democratic mandate at all. No one elected you as an MP. You're not a minister. You are staff. You're the prime minister's staff. Your job is not to try and get the country running the way that you want it run. It is to advise the prime minister and then implement the prime minister's decisions and make sure the government machine is doing what the prime minister wants. And that, uh, the quote you gave me, comes from a book that someone gave me very early on in the job about the history of of the Office of Chief of Staff to the President of the United States, which I found invaluable, full of really, really good advice about how to go about the job. One little thing I did, which I think helped not just me, but others around me to remember that dynamic, was I never, when I was a minister, I would have called Teresa, Teresa. When I was her Chief of Staff, even if it was just the two of us in the room in private, I called her Prime Minister, because I thought that was a way of setting clearly that I was an official working for her, not a sort of co-equal as a, as a minister, as it were. I think in terms of priorities, in one way it was made easy because Brexit was so obviously the dominant priority. It was the, it was the existential task of the government and it was clear that if we couldn't get that done, as sadly ultimately proved the case, that would be the end of her premiership. So in that sense, there was one issue which squeezed out a lot of the other things that I would have wanted to done if I had time. I think below that, what I tried to do, and I think we both probably acknowledge I wasn't 100% successful in this, but I tried not to let the other things that were urgent squeeze out things that were not urgent but were very important. Mm. The difficulty, if you like, in politics is that events are coming at you faster and faster and faster. And it's a much harder job today than it was 30, 40 years ago. The media cycle is so much shorter. So you're being bombarded all the time with news and journalists pressing for what's your line on this and what's your line on that. And a lot of that isn't really very important. And so it's about trying to open up space for actually thinking about the government's strategy. What are its key priorities? And what is it? how successful is it at delivering those priorities? You know, you'll, you'll know from the meetings you sat in that there's huge pressure um, to sort of constantly look at what's called the grid, the, the the announcements that the government is coming up with every day, because the government wants to make news every day because it kind of feels, well, if we don't make news, other people will fill the news gaps. with hostile things to us. But a lot of it is just trying to recycle things you said three weeks ago and put a different spin on it. And actually, the important thing is, OK, if our priorities are X, Y and Z, how are we doing against those priorities? Have we got the legislation that we wanted to get through through the House? And if we have, is it actually doing what we thought it would do? Is it on the ground making the difference that we hoped it would make? And then the other thing that we tried to do a bit, and you were involved in this clearly in terms of the business community, is try and avoid it becoming like a bunker. Try and have some contact with, some, with the outside world and get other people's perspectives on... A, what the issues are that, that are confronting them. If you're running a business in this country or if you're trying to deliver improvements to our NHS or you're trying to deliver improvements in school standards, you know, are the government's policies actually helping? Are there things that we're missing that we should be looking at? So that's, you know, I, I can't claim I was 100% successful in either of those things because of all the pressures that we were under during that period. But that's what I, tr your, your question was, what did I try and do in terms of prioritisation? Those are the two things that I was sort of conscious that were a problem. It's almost like you need a kind of public and a private grid because there is that inevitability of trying to fill the public airwaves, um, but also actually making sure the machinery of government is achieved. On if so, just to make one quick further point, if I went back, if I could do it all again, mm. one thing I would do differently is I would appoint a director of strategy. I, I think it would have been really, you, know, you used to come along quite often to the senior team meetings. Mm. And nearly all of us would get sucked into the immediate. And I think yeah. having someone who had nothing to do with the day-to-day -day firefighting and whose sole job was focusing on those longer-term things, I think would have made would have would have made a positive difference. Almost sitting out of the building, probably, because yeah. it inevitably you end up getting dragged in, caught into that as well. And it's uh, yeah, it was one of the challenges I found. Like, was you partly want to put yourself on the agenda in the building to do stuff, but you know, by 
job was the relations side of things, which inevitably was longer term. Yep. So it was it was always a, a many challenge. And th the other reflection that I thought was quite interesting that you had in the book was just that if you were doing it again, one of the things that you would advise Teresa is investing in relationships with senior colleagues and, and so on, which I thought was interesting. You, you talked about the dynamics of the House of Commons changing now to be more family-friendly hours, but that means that senior ministers end up spending time with political advisors more than their colleagues. You've alluded to it as well. The relationship between MP to MP is, is very different. It's, it's a, a unique relationship in a lot of ways. How important is that sort of that senior relationship building as in politics, but also in, in business as well. And how can you how can you do it as you get older? I'm almost asking this from a personal quote. Now I've got family <laughs> and stuff. It's like it's a lot harder because in your twenties you can go out and you can spend more time with it. When you've got a family and so on, it just becomes a lot more difficult to do it. So so one of the things the thing that drew me to politics, probably the thing I love about politics, is I think it's it's a fascinating confluence of ideas and people. Like mm. to be a great politician you both have to believe in some things and be able to sell to the public your vision of the kind of country that you want to create and, and the policies that you've got that will do that. But you also have to be a really good people person. You have to motivate people in your constituency to join your local party and campaign for you and help get you elected. If you become a minister, you've got to be able to motivate a team of civil servants, many of whom may not have voted for your party, to deliver the agenda that you're trying to drive through. And you've got to have relations with your senior. If you're a prime minister, you've got to inspire the, your cabinet to get behind the agenda that you're trying to put through. I suppose the, the point I was trying to make in the book is that it feels to me that senior politicians now spend more and more time with their people like me, their advisors, and not enough time with each other to build up those relationships. And I, politics is, I mean, you said how to do it. Uh, it may be true of business as well to a degree, but it's definitely true of politics. It's a game of snakes and ladders. Yeah, we've just seen a reshuffle. Mm. All right. Robert Jenrick had um, just got sacked from his job as Secretary of State for Housing and Communities. I think there's a pretty good chance that he'll get another go at mm. some point. You know, he's, a young, he's not that old. <laughs> um, I think he'll get another chance. And so how you behave on the way up mm. and how you deal with adversity, because... You know, in anyone's career, it's not always very few people have a career where it's success, success, success on. So how you deal with those two things, I think, has a big impact on how people treat you when you when you have a you know, when you have adversity and your ability to recover from that. I don't think it, you're right. Obviously, when you're younger, it can be you, know, you, you spend a lot more time probably socializing with people outside work because you haven't got all the family connections. But I think it's trying to make time for those crucial personal relationships, even within sort of office hours, because. You know, we are ultimately all sort of social social beings and those human relationships are crucially important to getting any organisation to work effectively. People management as well is a kind of key skill that is going to, I think, is kind of a job of the future much more. I think HR departments are going to become more important. And that was a, a key part of the role of chief of staff effectively as well. A, there's a team of 40 political advisors, but you've also got a cabinet, you've also got an entire parliamentary yep. party as well. There's lots of different kind of departments that you're dealing with in terms of trying to keep motivated and so on. And I'd love to hear your kind of reflections on that because I think there are, whilst entrepreneurialism and politics in some ways is a, is a huge kind of culture clash, there are also something quite similar. The way you talk about in terms of local MP having to persuade people to come and campaign, you know, you, similar in entrepreneurs and starting out, you are asking people to take a leap of faith, particularly at the beginning. It's all very exciting at the beginning as well, but actually how you keep that motivation going is quite important, particularly in the role that you had there was some quite hard yards at times. Yeah, so I guess I had two key sets of personal relationships I had to manage. One was sort of on behalf of Teresa, I was often involved in trying to broker deals between her and one of her cabinet members. And then the other was with you and, and people like you who were part of the team of political advisors in number 10. And so I think there were probably a few things that I tried to do. One was just to be very straight with people. Sometimes, you know, sometimes my job was to tell people things that they didn't want to hear. One of the di most difficult things for the chief of staff is controlling who's in the room. Mm. right? Because you'll know number 10, right? Power is about access. Right, how much face-to-face -face time do you get with the prime minister? So everybody that works in that building would like to come to the morning meeting. Yeah, but the prime minister's study can only accommodate about twenty people, uh, so you have to control who those twenty people are. 
And you know, I, I saw one of the key things as the job of trying to make sure the right people were in the room mm. for any given decision uh, that she had to take, giving her different perspectives on um, the issue. Uh, so just just trying to be honest and straight with people, never having people feel that I'd gone around their back to stitch them up or undercut them. And if, if there was something, if I had to say to someone, look, you can't come to this meeting or the Prime Minister's not happy with that idea that you put forward, just trying to be direct with them. Mm. The other thing was trying to make time for people. I don't think I was, I think you'll probably tell me I wasn't 100% successful to that. But I was conscious that I was like frantic. I was in there at sort of before six in the morning until late at night and constantly very busy. But someone like you would come up to me and say, like, I've had this idea and you, you have to try to sort of say, okay, I'm going to put down this urgent thing I'm doing for 10 minutes and, and give Jimmy an opportunity to explain because he's come to me with mm. an idea that might help. I need to make space to feel that, so that he, he you know, he'll be conscious I'm busy. He's not going to waste my time. Yeah, He's come to see me because he thinks he's got something that may be of use. And I, I wasn't always... You know, if I was under real pressure, I wasn't always perfect at that. But I think that's a really important thing. Having people feel that they can come to a senior person in an organisation if, if they either think something's going wrong that they want to draw to your attention or they've got an idea that might help. So those were probably the sort of two core things that tried to guide me in the way that I... And you'll know that when I came in, the atmosphere in the building wasn't right. You know, the, 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 the pre, For whatever reason, my predecessors had not created a culture where yeah. people felt... Uh, able to do that and I was and I was trying to and I guess not necessarily entrepreneurs but some people maybe when organizations get a bit bigger I was trying to blend some of the previous team who we wanted to keep on and the new people that we brought in to replace those who had left and try trying to very quickly create a new team spirit out of two quite disparate groups of people so you're now kind of running a business advising on political trends and and so forth and I just wondered what you thought of how business engages with government and, you know, how could it be done differently? But also, you know, it, we do have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show, etc. And how they can work with government, because a lot of what I end up saying to them is that you've got to be careful with government because you can end up stuck in a lot of meetings going around and around. And I'd just love to hear your kind of top level thoughts on on that around how people can engage with government and business more broadly. Because one of the one of the slight frustrations that I would sometimes have in the building would be somebody would be like, right, well, let's go speak to Jimmy and find out what business thinks of this policy <laughs> or whatever. And you know, sort of pointing out that there are twenty five million people that work in the private sector in the UK, that you get a lot of different views in that and and so on. So the the arc of business is changing. But I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, that's I think your your story there cues me into my first thought which is that the my view is that politics doesn't really understand business and business doesn't really understand politics they're very different worlds different cultures in how they uh, in how they work and operate so my my starting point would be to if you if you try it, the way you framed the question was you're trying to influence government policy on some mm. particular issue so i think i would encourage people to get advice about how government works i'm much more skeptical about people doing the lobby for you yeah i think yeah, if you if you had a business, Jimmy, I think you would be the best advocate for whatever change you were trying to advocate. Right? I think people who actually have, you know, are trying to make this point and believe in it in their hearts, they're always going to be the most powerful advocates for themselves. So what you need is you don't need to, you don't need someone who will go and do it for you because mm. they won't be as good as you at making the arguments. And often the politician will say, "Well, what about X?" and they won't know the answer. They'll have to come back and check with you, whereas you'll be able to respond to that directly. But what I think there is a need for is people who can help business people understand, right, so you're trying to shift this policy. First of all, who are the people that are making the decisions on that? Who are the politicians? Who are their advisors? Who are the key senior civil servants who are giving them advice? Well, so you know, who am I trying to influence? And then secondly, why is the policy as it is at the moment? Why might the government be doing this? And what argument, what is the best way of going about trying to persuade the government that actually you want to shift the policy from A to B. You have to, you, you need someone who understands what ministers are thinking, what their underlying assumptions are, so that if you're trying to shift their position, you know the best way in which to present your arguments uh, to do that. You know, I suppose what I do now with the businesses that I work for is primarily try and give people an understanding of what is actually going on sort of behind the scenes in politics, not just in the UK, um, but around the world, because I think a lot of these trends are global. You know, we tend to, 
we've been to this you know very difficult painful row about brexit and we kind of think well, this is a sort of uniquely british problem <laughs> that we've got but actually i would say across most of the democratic world politics is increasingly not about economics and it's about culture and identity and brexit is a is our manifestation of that but if you look at the way the republican party has changed in the us for example you can see real parallels of what we've been through and you can see similar examples in other in other democracies around the world and that is such a um, a shift change, isn't it? And my sort of thesis on this is every 30 or 40 years in British politics, but you could probably extend it more broadly, actually, map it over, you get a big shift change in the way that politics and the state and business interacts, particularly 1920s, foundation of the Labour Party, you know, originally the Party of Workers, 1940s, um, welfare state, Clement Attlee, post-World War II, 1970s, 80s, Thatcherism, rollback of the state, end of the Cold War, etc. I always thought Brexit would actually be the moment that the British you know, state changed once again. Once you add in COVID as well, I think it's a real shift for where, for a long time, business and the government have been of similar objectives of, you know, we need GDP increasing and we need jobs. And actually, like you say there, there is a bit of a shift that's kind of fundamentally taking place at the moment about economics and whether that is the kind of primary aim of governments anymore and it's a real challenge for businesses to kind of shift that mindset particularly some of the bigger trade bodies and, and so on that have been so used to kind of arguing for you know do x and you know we'll see y increase in gdp it's not that partly because the world's become so much more interrelated as well do you think that we're at a kind of like proper seismic moment of that so i think there are several forces that are combining at the same time which are going to lead to some quite profound changes so one is this this point that i was making that i think it's not just a british phenomenon if you look around the world politics is increasingly about people's identity and sort of views on cultural issues that's the dividing line that you see it used to be when i when i you know so i'm I was just about to turn 50 for my sins and when i got involved in politics first of all and you know thinking about your dad when he probably stood mm -hmm. for the first time as an mp Class was a big predictor of how people voted, right? Generally speaking, working class parts of the country would have Labour MPs, middle class areas of the country would have Conservative MPs. And that has gone completely. Mm. That's not the predictor anymore at all. So that's a big change. And as I said, I, it's not just a British phenomenon. Then you've got the pandemic, which is, I think, an event similar in impact to the world wars in terms of changing how we've lived our lives for the last year and a half, nearly two years now. And some of those changes are going to be sticky, right? We've we've all changed our behaviours in ways. Some some things we've like hated, and we can't wait to get back to how we had them before. But some things have actually worked for us, and are going to those behaviours are going to prove sticky. Uh, and then, at a geopolitical level, you know the the rise of China, I think, is leading to uh, to uh, and and America's. Yeah, America's going through that painful process that every other previous leading world power has had to go through, where it's it's no longer the dominant. You, you know, we're not in this unipolar world that we've been in since the end of the Cold War anymore. And it's finding that painful, and it's sort of retrenching on its core interests rather than trying to be a global policeman, hence Afghanistan withdrawal. Yeah. So I think when you combine those forces together and you think about how they're going to develop over time, it seems to me... You know, we don't have a political party in this country at the moment that is a small state, low tax party anymore. You know, this Conservative Party is not like yeah. a Margaret Thatcher Conservative Party. And um, the, the sort of trend for globalisation and sort of free movement of people and all that, that's all breaking down as well, right? It feels like you look at von der Leyen's State of the Union speech last week. It was mm -hmm. about saying, all right, we're not, we don't want to rely on Asian countries for semiconductors. We want our own capacity here in Europe, manufacturing, and you're going to see more and more of those trends, I think, and that's going to have big implications for, if you combine those three things, big implications for business. Yeah, it's, um, the energy companies are a fascinating example yep. of this at the moment, and Kwasi Kwarteng, who, you know, has been an avowed free marketeer and so on, is now at the situation of where, you know, if they don't look at kind of putting together a package for some of the energy companies and you're at least bridging what is quite a tough time then you end up at, you know you're going to end up with some energy companies being dissolved and then ending up with a much more uncompetitive market i think it's a real challenge for what the kind of conservative traditionists i'm not sure is is technically the right um point how 
you know, what does the Tory party believe on those types of things is, is quite hard. And actually, two years after a Boris Johnson premiership, some of these issues are not clear, a bit like Afghanistan as well. Is, you know, where do we stand as a country on this? And it's not clear. Well, you see, you're saying Kwasi is a free marketeer. The current policy of the government is to prevent consumers being charged the price of energy. Yeah. So, you know, when, when wholesale prices go through the roof, it's not surprising that a number of businesses are finding it very difficult to continue in business if the government is not allowing them to reflect to their customers what the price is of the product they're selling. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> yeah, and that, that, but there were going to be more and more of these issues that kind of um, come up. And I think it's going to be a real challenge to see where the Conservative Party um, lies on. Yeah, we could, if we were listing these mega trends, we definitely actually should have included decarbonisation yeah. uh, as another one of those with profound implications for, for the way we do business in our economy. And talking about the sort of beginning of your career, yeah, one of the things that this podcast kind of focuses on is trying to sort of become a careers fair for people to learn lots of different jobs that are out there because the market's becoming so much more disparate for it. Struck by in the book, talking about how you ended up working, because you've basically spent your entire like adult life in and around the Conservative Party at official level, MP, Minister, and latterly Chief of Staff as well. But it all happened because a friend went and got some job ads for you. I mean, that's quite an amazing serendipitous story. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm the worst person to give career advice because it's just like, it's just been complete sequence of, you know, lucky breaks, essentially. So I, I to tell the story properly, my degree was in theoretical physics. Mm. I knew I didn't want to be a theoretical physicist at the end of that. Didn't know what I did want to do. And my friend was worried I wasn't going to have a job. So he went down to the careers library, came up with 100 random job adverts, went down the pub and we went through them. And the only one I didn't reject was this job that was giving advice about environmental policy to the Conservative Party. Basically, there's a bit of science in it. And I was interested in politics, never thought I'd have anything to do with it. But I was always, in, you know, watch the news and all of that. Um, so I thought well, I'm going anything else to. I'll apply. They offered me a job. I'll try it, and 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 loved it from day one. Um, and then people just kept offering me more and more interesting jobs. Uh, and this culminates, you know. So you, you become an MP and you become a government minister. Then I lose my seat, and I think, well, that's it. I'm going to go and do something different with my life now. And and literally 24 hours after the disaster, this humiliation. Let's be honest, right? You have the people of your hometown vote you out of your job, and you lose your ministerial job as a result of losing that first job real low moment 24 hours later the prime minister phones me up and offers me this you know absolute most amazing job i'll ever do in my life so i'm not really someone to give careers advice because i can't <laughs> i can't say to you that this was all planned uh it was just a sort of sequence and really the only con the, the, what i'm now doing the business that i've mm. set up is the first kind of conscious decision that i've really taken if you like <laughs> I, I did because as you'll know you have to have a sort of break of several months when you leave number 10. Mm. I did have to, I almost kind of was forced to sit back and think, all right, Barwa, what are you going to do now? <laughs> um, so this is the first one that is a sort of uh, conscious, conscious decision, as it were. And I guess this is, I mean, one of the questions that we've asked everyone that's come on, and this will be in some ways very hard for you to narrow down, but the government has this policy of build back better, both sides of Atlantic have it, and also levelling up in the UK as well. They sound very good, but trying to put more meat on the bones of them is is hard. And these are challenges that you know even the Cameron government set out in 2010 to rebalance the economy away from London and the southeast and financial services. What would be your kind of key thoughts on on how to to do that? And sometimes it is easy, it's slightly easier having been out for a couple of years almost to to see these things. So to my mind, Build Back Better has got two main elements to it. One of them, I think there is real clarity about, which is net zero, the decarbonisation of our economy. And that is not just a UK issue, it's clearly a global issue for every government around the world. And it is the challenge of our age. And I'm not, I'm not one of those doom mongers who think, you know, we're going to become extinct if we don't deal with this. But the thing that I think a lot of people who are more sceptical about climate change miss is that this problem is going to lead to mass migration and global conflict. You know, as if as as resources become more scarce, you are gonna that it is going to be a major destabilizing effect politically. Right? You think about the political consequences of the migration crisis in the the, the middle of the decade we've just been through. Right? Magnify that if if significant parts of the world become very difficult for people to live in. Think about what that's going to do to politics. Right? So that's what I think a lot of people don't get about climate change. So that's 
that I think the challenge is clear. We know what it is that we have to do. Uh, and, you know, my starting point on that, which would be different to Extinction Rebellions, is that far from capitalism and the market being the problem, it is the solution to this problem. We need to redesign the market so that it prices carbon and use private sector investment and entrepreneurship and know-how to deliver the changes that we need to deliver. What I think is much more vague is levelling up. Mm. All right? Maybe deliberately on the Prime Minister's part, it's sometimes helpful for politicians not to nail down uh, a single metric. But there's a fact that he quotes, which I think captures the essence of it, which is that there are several regions of our country where GDP per head, productivity, is lower than it is in the former East Germany. Mm-hmm. So you think about the disparity in Germany in 1990 when, when it reunified and the success they have had in raising living standards in Eastern Germany up yeah. to the point where now quite a large part of our country is below that. Uh, that's the challenge. Now, what we don't have yet from the government is clarity about how they are going to tackle that challenge. But I, I do give... You know, I give the Prime Minister credit that I think that is a really important issue to be looking at. Theresa felt much the same. She talked about country that works for everyone and the industrial strategy, the place element of that was a really important bit of it. But it's a long-standing problem in this country uh, and it is right that politicians tackle it. But I think the, the tenor of your question, which was, well, how do you do it? That, that we need some more, you know, that's not clear yet. And how much do you think there's a London bias to some of this stuff. And I, I know that perhaps I'm asking almost the wrong person as somebody who's been brought up in London and a London member of Parliament. But it it does strike me, because like you say, the industrial strategy was a big part of what Theresa was trying to do in this. And there are some amazing stories that are out in the rest of the UK. But there is a real correlation between businesses that are based outside of London, just generally don't engage with the government. And it's been a big part of what the government's trying to do, moving the Treasury to Darlington and so on, and even the Conservative Party itself trying to move to, to Leeds as well, all of which I think is good, but it's, it's pretty small steps. But I would just be intrigued as to your kind of thoughts on that. So I think the fact that the problem is so long-standing tells you there's some fundamental things about our country which um, are part of the problem. So the obvious example I would start with is that if you look at the United States, Washington is the political capital, Mm. New York is the financial capital, Los Angeles is the cultural capital. But in our country, all of those things are concentrated in London. And then you add to that geography. You know, trade these days is less about goods, Mm. but still... You know, historically, Britain's trade flowed through to the continent and London was geographically very well positioned to take advantage of that. So there are are some fundamental drivers behind the problem. And there is, you know, there is a deeply inbuilt London sort of bias in our system. Now, as a Londoner, I have to make one counterpoint, which is I think that looking at this issue just as a very simple north-south divide is misleading because actually there are pockets of deprivation places where people don't have opportunity in all parts of our country so i think and i think the government is onto this to be fair you've got to be more granular about it but what we want is a country you know talent is evenly distributed in this country and opportunity is not and that is ultimately what we're trying to uh, i think when you talk about build back better and leveling up that is what you're trying to put right i agree and it's it's trying to get new clusters specializing in in new areas and that's the thing and i, I do think there's a role that government has to can play in partly jumpstarting this. And I do think the the, the mayors are quite good potentially yep. doing that. I think you've seen what Andy Street and Ben Houchin are doing in, in terms of not picking winners necessarily, but picking sectors that they want to go after and so on can make a real difference. So I, I think that devolution of power in this country is definitely part of the answer. Um, and at the moment, we've got a model that that is working for our big cities. Most of our major conurbations have now got some... Uh, you know, a, a mayor figure, you know, someone who has real power to shape that area, but we don't have a model for what we do uh, outside those major conurbations. And I think that's one of the things the government's looking at right now, but I agree with you, that is part of the solution. So we, we just have a couple of quick fires to kind of finish yeah. on. So there's, um, you, you talk about, and I, I, obviously the, your desk backed onto the prime ministers and 
therefore um, nobody could kind of get in without you, you seeing them. But it does mean that she could leave her office without you seeing necessarily. Um, and you talk about in the book, you know, occasionally you'd be sharing a bit of gossip or, or so on. Um, and I just wonder, was there a particularly sort of um, embarrassing moment where she came out and saw you sort of indulging in something like that? And uh, yeah, any stories along those lines? Yes, I'm not going to name the individual, but there was one occasion when I was discussing the the love life of one of our one of our colleagues, uh, and it turned out that the prime minister was standing behind me, which was which was mildly embarrassing. If you could uh, if you could recommend a, a a book or something to somebody who's thinking about like in the chief of staff, you know, lots of entrepreneurs thinking about you know taking this this role on this human Swiss army knife that they can have. Is there a book you recommend they could read to kind of upskill on it? Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, I am a avid reader. My house is like <laughs> littered with piles of books, read or unread. I'm, so I'm going to give you one that directly answers your question. Then I'm going to give you two other books that I love that, but then maybe not so much focused mm. on. So, so the book, my favorite ever book is a book called what it takes. And it's a account of the 1988 U S presidential election where Bush Sr. wins, Mm. beats a guy called Mike Dukakis. But it's not like any other political book I've read. It's not an account of the campaign. Each chapter is a little story from the lives of one of the six or seven people that got closest to winning. And the book tries to explain to you how did they ever get to the point where they thought that they could be the president of the United States and what did it do to them trying to become the president of the United States. It's the most moving book I've ever read I mean and a real insight into what is involved in you know because also there were already many of them governors or senators or whatever so the insight into the jobs they were doing and the job they aspired to do another book that I love um, is uh, I think it's called Playing With Fire but it's uh, the autobiography of NASA Hussein mm. and it's one of the most honest sort of sports biography I, so I I'm not, I'm afraid, I'm a rather uncultured person. I don't read a lot of fiction, right? So I read history, I read politics, I read sports biography, essentially. Those are my sort of niches. But this is probably the best sports biography I've ever read because it's very honest about his sort of struggles to get to where he got to in the game. And, you know, he clearly, maybe I think probably unfairly on himself, but he clearly regards some of the other people he played with as much more talented than him. Mm. And he believes that it was his sort of, some of his personal qualities that got him to where he was rather than raw talent necessarily. Um, and then on the science side, so the, the other genre I read is science with my, my old degree hat on. Uh, there's a book by Richard Dawkins who has become quite a controversial figure on religion, but one of his original scientific books called The Selfish Gene, I think is a, is a brilliantly written book at taking an issue evolution and looking at it from a different perspective and the insights that it gives so there's three book recommendations of very different kinds um well that's um that's really good and of course your your own book as well which which you shouldn't shouldn't forget can't of really here. pick my own book that would be <laughs> yeah, that, that really would be too much that's true but you t- i noticed when you were tweeting about it the other day um you didn't necessarily tweet the the amazon link for it you uh tweeted bookshop what's your kind of thinking behind that so uh, i am a dinosaur i love bookshops i I think it's inevitable that more and more people are gonna um buy their books online for convenience reasons but i am waging a personal one battle to try and preserve bookshops because i think they are amazing places so i even though it costs me more and i'm in a fortune position where i've got an income where i can do it i guess but i always buy my bookshop books in bookshops but the so just the but bookshop.org because i think it's brilliant it allows you to buy online still so have the convenience but pick a local bookshop yes. that benefits from yeah. it yeah so it's a really clever way of trying to exactly as you say trying to combine the desire to support independent bookshops with convenience yeah which i think is so important and the final question which i know you said beforehand you were slightly struggling with this, so you've <laughs> had a full hour to kind of think about it um what if you could go back in time to a day to witness which one would you choose and why so again i'm going to give you three answers <laughs> right it's cheating politicians so there's one day that i witnessed yeah that i was lucky to witness um well actually two of them ones like two of them ones that i witnessed but this is a sort of historical one which i think was what you were looking for mm. um which was the fall of the berlin wall yeah and it feels kind of a melancholy moment now because it felt to me at the time i was 17 i think and it felt like 
this sort of scary world that I'd grown up in of the Cold War was falling away and there was a really great future ahead. And today's world, it doesn't feel like all of that promise has necessarily been borne out. Um, if I could go further back in time, I think going and listening to the Gettysburg Address live would be, that would be a good one to pick. And then I'm going to pick one that is just from my personal life, which is I'd love to go back and watch my wedding day again yeah. because it just went so quick. <laughs> You know, I think everyone finds it. I, lots of I've said this to lots of people, and they all, I think, share that perspective that you're, you're sort of moved around, cut the cake, do the photos, do this, do that, and you never really get the time to just sit down and chill out with all your friends and family that you've in, invited to the wedding. So there you go, three quite different kinds of days for different reasons. Yeah, no, it's I um, I reflect, but Ben Francis who just got married. It was the first episode of this series, and I was saying to him just before that, I said the the one thing that i regret from my wedding day is that we when we finished came down the aisle and you because you're on cloud nine you you we i basically sprinted through <laughs> and it's just such a shit because it's such a such a happy moment but um yeah that's my, my kind of one tip for people about to about to get married um gavin thanks so much for coming on it's been really insightful to kind of talk about the the job of chief of staff and what it does and the book is a, a really good insight into kind of what the day-to-day -day involved and and how this role is changing but also you know it was a very turbulent time in in british politics and it does set out some of the the key things that were happening and that, we were, that the government was trying to do at the time and avoid some of the problems that we are beginning to to see and so on and it was i found it a very refreshing read to go over it um because when it was happening, it was all quite, it's quite hard to keep up with it all. Yeah. So, I mean, my goal is kind, but my, my goal was to try and explain to a lay reader who's interested in politics, but hasn't worked in it. What actually goes on behind that black door? Yeah, there was a, there was a great quote, which I really thought summed it up. The Bill Gates one at the beginning, the true mark of a clever person is if they can explain something yeah. simply. And it, 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 I chose that quote because it's something one of my friends once said to me. We were, I think we probably all had a bit too much to drink, but we were, we were trying to identify what did we think each person's particular skill was. And this person said to me, what you're good at is explaining to people something that's quite complicated and popularising it, essentially. And that Selfish Gene book I was talking about, that Dawkins does that brilliantly in, in that book. So it's always been a skill that I've aspired to and, and one that I admire, and that's why, that's why I chose the quote. The start of it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Gavin. Pleasure. Today we interviewed a member of the House of Lords and I wanted to recommend a new podcast by a former leader of the House of Lords, Baroness Stahl, or as she would much rather you and I call her, Tina. She has launched a podcast called Tina Talks to Today's Britons, where she speaks to people in regular jobs about their roles and how perhaps the perception that the media and policymakers have of them may not always be accurate. Just search for Tina Talks to Today's Britons wherever you get your podcasts.